0: Welcome to Art of Citizenry podcast, where we navigate the complexities of doing good in an unequal world. I am your host and in-house educator, Munpreet Kaur Kalra. Welcome to 2021. I'd like to take a moment to reflect on the past year. Each day felt like a battle in its own right, some small, some big. But amid all of that, it pushed us to collectively come to terms with our own fragility. From the challenges of a global pandemic to the social awakening that sparked some much overdue deconstruction of our systems. I hope the past year gave you a chance to pause, reflect, and most importantly, take action. If there's anything I hope we each took away from 2020, it is that true change takes time. It takes both learning and unlearning. And most importantly, it takes a commitment to understanding that progress is a process. I want to start 2021 with an episode close to my heart. It is about my community, the pain we have suffered, and the systemic oppression we continue to challenge. At this moment, the largest protest in human history is happening. 250 million farmers and workers across India, many from the states of Punjab and Haryana, have taken to the streets in protest of three new agricultural bills that threaten to obliterate their livelihood. On the surface, India's Prime Minister, Narendra Modi, has claimed that these bills promote a free market, but like everything we cover in this podcast, we know that not everything is always the way it seems. I can't begin this episode without understanding the history of a land divided. What is now considered the state of Punjab is just but a fraction of what used to be the land of lush green fields and flowing five rivers. In 1947, as the British left India, they divided Punjab between what is present-day Pakistan and India. What followed was the world's largest mass migration, resulting in the bloody displacement of hundreds of thousands of people. Families were uprooted from their homes, forced to leave the land they had lived on for generations. During the journey, many lost loved ones due to violence caused by the displacement. My grandparents were forced away from their homes in West Punjab, now Pakistan, at a young age. The violence that occurred during that period took the life of their siblings and other family members. My ancestral homeland is tied to the fields of West Punjab. I have never had the benefit of knowing what it feels to visit my generational home, because for me, and many like me, it has been taken away from us. Our history burned and destroyed. Post-1947 Punjab was even further reduced in size from 58,000 square miles to 19,000 square miles. However, despite its relatively small size, it produces a disproportionately high ratio of India's crops. Which brings us back to the three new farm bills at hand. These bills enable the corporate monopolization of India's farming industry. And if history has taught us anything, this direction will only end up hurting small farmers, the backbone of India. The protests are being led by our grandparents and great-grandparents, braving the cold winter air of Delhi, the capital of India, just to ensure that their voice is heard. The reality is, these laws are deadly to the livelihoods of small farmers. So much so that these farmers are willing to risk their lives to demand that the laws be repealed and that farmers, not just corporations, have a seat at the decision-making table. From Punjab, Haryana, and other parts of India, these farmers have been met with police brutality and government-regulated false reporting. It is not uncommon for oppressors to paint people who challenge their power as unpatriotic, but isn't it more patriotic to hold your government up to a higher standard? Painting farmers as terrorists to justify state-sponsored violence is the reality of India's democracy. During this episode, I am joined by four unique voices, as we deconstruct India's new farming bills and the historical context we cannot ignore. We will explore the intersection of economic development, social impact, environmental impact, and religio-political constructs. It is important to recognize the various ways in which each aspect influences the other. With that, let's start by first understanding the economics behind the three new bills. The new ordinances essentially allow for a free market to exist in India's agricultural industry, allowing farmers to sell to private companies, not just government regulated markets, referred to as Mundis. The first bill, the Farmers' Product Trade and Commerce Bill, essentially bypasses the government regulated Agricultural Produce Market Committee, the APMC. The
1: APMC Act basically established these. Traditional mandis are these places where farmers can go and uh, sell their produce at the end of the harvest. And these were established by the government. There were something called arthias, which were service providers, which would buy the produce from the government. And then government would procure that particular produce at a given set price. And that set price was called uh, MSP or minimum support price. What that did is it did provide a certain kind of uh, assurance for the farmer. And all of this started uh, back in the '60s when India didn't have enough produce to feed its ever-growing large population, and it was importing a lot of grains from uh, the rest of the world, especially you know North America. And during that time, there was this movement of Jai Javan, Jai Kisan, and there was a green revolution that followed, and a lot of the new ways of agriculture were introduced. So. During that time, uh, rice was not a predominant crop of of Punjab uh, and Haryana, but rice was the staple food of rest of India. So electricity that was subsidized, the MSP was set to set enough economic incentives for these kind of crops to be grown in these areas. And the productivity uh, of, of the farmlands grew quite a bit. This new law uh, sort of bypasses the traditional APMC Mondays and sets up and allows the private players to set up parallel Mondays, which are tax exempt, where anybody with a national identification number uh, can go and buy a produce. So the government's narrative around that is it is enabling the farmers to get better prices for their produce instead of just the MSP that is typically within the Mondays. The farmers, on the other hand, look at the models of similar kind of setups, especially in Bihar. APMC Mundis were eliminated back in 2006. They fear that what will happen is that when the parallel Mundis are established, uh, there are not enough economic incentives. Private players might be able to raise the prices at which they are buying from the farmers. So the APMC Mundis within... A couple of years will completely get eliminated. And now the fires will be left at the mercy of these private players.
0: That is the voice of our first guest, Arvinder Singh, a technologist, entrepreneur, and community builder. He currently serves as entrepreneur in residence at the Digital Economist, a Washington, D.C.-based think tank. One of the points that's important to note here is the case study of Bihad. In 2006, Nitish Kumar, Bihar's chief minister, repealed the APMC Act. Over the past 14 years, Bihar's farmers have had to sell their crops to private procurers at throwaway prices. Farmers are having to sell petty or rice before its husked at half of what the MSP used to be. Many of Bihar's farmers have had to abandon the little land they had and now work as laborers in Punjab and Haryana.
1: The second law, you can call it the contract farming law. It basically facilitates contract farming. So the private players can go in and do a contract for the farmer as soon as the crop is sowed, and then at a preset price can pay the farmer. Now, the farmers on the, on the other side, when they look at it, they look at one, the vagueness of the language, and second is what are the conflict resolution things that have been kept into the law? So one of the things that this law directs is that if there's a conflict between a private buyer and the farmer, the farmer cannot go into the court. They can only go to the senior district magistrate. Now, the farmers fear that given there's a lot of corruption and bureaucracy and red tape in India, it'll almost become impossible for the farmer to get a fair shot if the other party walks away from the negotiation.
0: In most developed countries with a free market system, farmers have protections, farm subsidies, that essentially help reduce any financial risk related to weather, commodities brokers, and disruption in demands. But as with any capitalist system, these systems usually only benefit larger producers, but still, they exist discouraging the complete monopolization of the agricultural industry by corporations.
1: The third law uh, basically is a free a food hoarding law, which basically um, sets aside certain principles on how the food hoarding can be done, how the storage of the particular po- you know food items can be done. So the government, on its side, basically says that it is ensuring that there are certain safeguards against you know in the management of prices, and it's enabling private players to hold a certain produce at you know at a certain price. The farmers on the other side fear that what will actually happen is that their produce will be purchased at a much lower price. And then during the time of shortage, the prices will be raised. The way farmers look at all these, these laws is that these laws came out during a pandemic. Right? They were rushed through the parliament. These laws were bought in to incentivize the corporates and elimination of small farmers. And they look at the similar kind of models that existed in other parts of the world and what their result was. And given that India is predominantly, or at least was and slowly it's changing, an agrocentric economy, the farmers feel that this is completely going to change the way farms are being managed.
0: Capitalism at its core is built on the existence of inequities. The goal of any business operating in a capitalist society is to maximize profits for shareholders, prioritizing profits over people. This notion leaves those at the bottom, the workers and small farmers, with only a small share of the wealth, if that. Addressing these layers of complexities when understanding any issue is critical.
1: India back in the you know, 90s was 70%. Rural communities and 30% urban communities. The way governments are looking at it and the way smart city projects are projecting it, they want to look at it as the reversal of that 70 30 ratio by 2040. So, what the farmers fear is a lot of these laws are being bought in to accelerate that process where rural land holding small farmers will have to become dependent and go out to you know cities and become urban dwellers away from their farms and houses to go and work. So I think there are just a lot of layers to what is being talked about uh, and a lot of layers to the fears that the farmers have.
0: But with free markets being the sign of a progressive capitalist society, why are farmers so upset?
1: I don't think capitalism is the golden standard. It is always perceived as such. I mean, the, the cracks in this model of this capitalism as being the shining star of everything of, of economics, that narrative is it's showing cracks. And you see the number of protests that are happening in the US. Yes, there are definitely racial issues, but a lot of that is the issues with the power structure that are driven by haves and have-nots, the percenters and, you know, the rest of the world. And I think if you look at India as a country, it's it's very community-based country, especially the rural areas. And even the, even the practices within India, they're not typically driven by the kind of structures that you see in a capitalistic society. Being a Sikh, I would give you an example of the idea of Lunger. This idea of Lunger, that there is this community comes together, builds a kitchen, and Anybody and everybody can come and eat. Where are the profit incentives there? There aren't many. If, if you live in a typical village, right? Like I grew up in a village and we had, we had a bog, which is an orchard. You would see that people from the village would sometimes, you know, come and, and eat fruit. It was like the demarcation of personal property and private property is um, very different in community-based countries. And I think the economics of a particular country has to be grown there. If you try to import it directly from another country, you know, those models sometimes fall flat.
0: The issue with the cookie cutter approach is that we fail to acknowledge the complexity of layers that exist in any given society. We see this with social entrepreneurship as well. To assume the same approach to economic development can work in any country is naive. We must recognize that sustainable development and change requires understanding the nuance surrounding why a society exists the way it does. That requires deconstructing the layers of deep-seated cultural and often even religious influences. While capitalism on paper has its pros, the way modern-day capitalism is built, it not only furthers but benefits from social inequities. Capitalism as we see it currently centers corporate profits.
1: I think there are certain flaws. And if you're going to look at future, it's human-centered. And if you're going to look at human-centric economies of the future, where there are less conflicts, you have to look at not just the, you know, from the point of profit-driven markets, but you have to take into account the ethnic aspects of it, the human aspects of it, the localization
0: aspects of it. What is wheat and rice in India is corn in the United States. Let's take a moment to step back and reflect on the environmental factors at play when we think about agribusiness. In the United States, when driving through the Midwest and Great Plains, you cannot miss the sprawling corn farms. Corn has become a staple of the U.S. farming industry because of its versatility. While it can be used to make food like cornmeal, its primary use in the United States is for ethanol animal feed, and high fructose corn syrup. Corn receives more subsidies from the federal government than any other crop. It also consumes a large amount of freshwater resources and 5.6 million tons of nitrogen in the form of chemical fertilizer, which gets washed into our lakes, rivers, and ocean, ultimately hurting the ecosystem. What has happened in regions such as Ohio is that the farming industry is no longer working to feed people. Instead, it is working to simply sustain in whatever way possible. Agricultural diversity of fruits and vegetables has been sidelined for the safer pick, corn. In an article published by Scientific American, the author sums up the problem with this key point. It would be simply wrong to blame farmers for any of these issues. In this economic and political landscape, they would be crazy not to grow corn. Farmers are simply delivering what markets and policies are demanding. What needs to change here is the system, not the farmers. Looking at economics alone is just not enough. Another example is that of Mexico's avocado production. In this case, it's important to note how most of Mexico's avocado production is exported to countries like the United States. Growing avocados is incredibly water-intensive. For example, one hectare of avocado with 156 trees consumes 1.6 times more water than a forest with 677 trees per hectare. So not only are avocados causing a water shortage, but the fruit of the land is not being consumed by the people who produce it. Intensive avocado production has caused biodiversity loss, extreme weather conditions, degradation of soil, and is at the brink of causing an entirely human-made environmental disaster, all in the name of free trade. Consumption in one country should not be at the cost of destroying another country.
1: Yeah, I'll give you another example. I think in the context of our conversation, like the example of Punjab, if you typically start to only look at the economic incentive point of view, the damage that it can do. Punjab, for example, is not a place which uh, our staple food is wheat and not necessarily rice. India is not a right place to grow rice because it doesn't have as much water. Rice typically grows in standing water. So places where there are river deltas are much more suitable for it. Places like Bengal. But what happened back in the Green Revolution was that rice was incentivized. The construct of MSP came from there. Rice was incentivized to be grown in Punjab. Now, when Punjab didn't have the kind of standing water that you require in hot summers, electricity incentives were provided to pump the groundwater and grow rice in Punjab. What also happened during that time to increase the productivity and use non-native seeds, use of a lot of pesticides was promoted, right? Agriculture University was set up. And they were promoting, you know, pesticides, use of pesticides. Now, fast forward three decades. The water level in Punjab is exploited to the point that you don't have much drinking water left, you know, in the groundwater of Punjab. The impact of pesticides is so much that the amount of cancer across Punjab is the number of cases is rising, right? There is a cancer train that leaves Batinda side of Punjab and goes to a cancer hospital in Rajasthan every day and it's packed every day.
0: And that is exactly why it's important to recognize that economic development does not happen in silo. We need to recognize the ways in which we need to first deconstruct the systems at play to fix them. For example, I recently learned that while MSP is supposed to be assured for 23 crops In practice, it is only provided for wheat and rice. So we know MSP is not a perfect system, and quite frankly, the system the farmers are fighting to protect is flawed. That irony indicates the magnitude of harm the new laws are causing. The farmers are willing to protect a system that isn't great to begin with.
1: I think what this march is going to do, it's going to open up a lot of other conversation. And I think the current deadlock exists because I think the, even the government, which is very pro corporate, pro foreign direct investment, huge amounts of foreign investments flew into India during this pandemic. So I think even the government is, you know, sort of aware that this is going to open up a lot of other questions. It's going to open up a Pandora's box. And one of those questions that need to be tackled is that does Punjab need this cycle of wheat and paddy. And this conversation has been going on for a while, but what is happening is that there are no economic incentives that are set up to break this cycle. And MSP is actually one of the hindrances. But the other thing is like just removing MSP from farmers who can barely survive is not going to fix the problem. I read somewhere that for every cow in Europe gets more daily Sort of incentives from the government, then the the money that is uh, needed to support a poor family in 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 very underdeveloped parts of the world. So I think there have to be incentives for a certain kind of agriculture growth. I think there are a lot of different questions that that will come out of 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 this march. One of the questions that is definitely going to come out of this march is the idea of federalism that has been always in the conversation in undertones in Punjab, right? In the last 60 or 70 years, right? There have been revolutions in Punjab that started with it, you know, and they were suppressed. But I think that the idea that, can the state devise its own agriculture policy? And within the constitution of India, agriculture is actually a state subject, but because the procurement of the produce happens through the center government, the center government that buys the produce to provide to rest of India, the, the states don't have much power of it. And there are conversations that are happening around who could be the buyers of the produce, so if you look at the geographic location of Punjab, a lot of our produced can be sold in, in the West, for example, right? The borders that go you know, all the way from Pakistan to, to Iran and further. But that is a tight border. A lot of Indians believe that trade doesn't happen between India and Pakistan. Huge trade happens between India and Pakistan. But it happens through the ports of Bombay and Karachi. So the community that... Controls a major section of the businesses within 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 Bombay is the Gujarati community. It's one of the affluent communities, and it's the same state from where the Prime Minister Modi comes from. So you have a lot of layers of these political uh, aspirations. You have layers of these economic aspirations, and there are a lot of moving parts that are at play than what you see on the surface. And I think what this march is going to do, if successful, it's going to enable a lot of introspection. What this march has done is it has reconnected people with their lands and with the idea that land is their provider. It is the land ownership that is enabling so many people to be protesting for their rights in Delhi.
0: Similar to corn subsidies, MSP was essentially set up to incentivize people to move away from their traditional crop cycles. As a result, the agricultural diversity of Punjab has over the years vanished. So why don't farmers challenge these crop cycles?
1: I think it was a couple of years ago that the rate of potatoes was really high. The next year, the rate of, rate of potatoes just kind of fell to the ground. And the farmers threw their potatoes like, on, on the roads because it was not profitable for them to harvest and kind of sell it. I'll give you my own example. Like back in the day when I was uh, young and you know I was, uh, I was going to school, I used to live in, I hail from Punjab and I grew up on a farm and uh, we grew cauliflower. So cauliflower the previous year was fetching good price and we decided to break the cycle of paddy and beet and we ventured into vegetables. And um, for anyone who has done you know, farming or who has done vegetable farming, they have to harvest it the day before. And sell it fresh in the market because it, you know, still is going to take a certain time to reach. There aren't many cold storages, you know, that that kind of infrastructure does not exist in Punjab. So I remember, you know, in in cold winter days, going to the farm, you know, along with the farm labor, cutting up cauliflower, loading up the trolley, taking it to the farm early in the morning. Would wake up around four thirty, and you know, the Mondays typically are set up around six before the the, the shopkeepers kind of open up and. I remember selling the produce for less than the price that we would pay to the laborers to cut it, right? to harvest it. So it was hard to, it's, it's hard without the incentives set in place to break away from that cycle.
0: This brings us to a very important question. In countries with high wealth disparities, what role does the government play?
1: Nation states are, are changing and the role of nation states is also changing. And I think one of the questions that typically comes up is the role of nation-state to grow its GDP, even if that GDP is concentrated in few hands, or is the role of the nation-state to be a partial welfare state where it looks at people from all spectrums that exist in its country? And I think that is what India is struggling with. If you look at the preamble of the Constitution of India, It's a secular socialist republic. And now it is after Manmohan Singh's, you know, gay treaty, it has entered into this canopy of the World Trade Organization. And now you have this lot of foreign investments that are happening. How does India balance that while keeping its spirit intact? India is such a diverse country. Its diversity has its own needs and its own aspirations.
0: So what does a sustainable microeconomy look like?
1: I think the
0: sustainability
1: component. There, there are different layers of it, and I think it. I, I'm hoping that post this whole uprise, these would start to get addressed. The sustainability has to come if we start to look at what are the crops that Punjab needs first and foremost. And maybe you know, if there is a government that comes in into power which is Punjab oriented, it's unfortunate for Punjab that every subsequent government which has come in Punjab typically played as a role of being a shadow government for the center and wasn't typically focused as much on what are the needs of the state. So I think if a government comes into, into play, which starts to look at how can we incentive, how can we measure what are the needs of Punjab? What is its consumption? Now, can we incentivize growth of those kinds of produce or you know, vegetables and diversity of crops within Punjab? Now, what that eliminates is, you you know, the farmers don't have to sell too far away from where the produce is being produced or being harvested. And it also ensures that there is enough diversity of crops. So I think sustainability and diversity kind of goes hand in hand in terms of crops. I recently went to Patiala and I know a young farmer there, very entrepreneurial farmer. And one of the things he realized that it's hard to get pure milk in Punjab. Because you have a lot of middlemen who will add a lot of additives, a lot of chemical milk that is coming to market. So he said, you know, there's a demand for milk. And on the other side, you have these farmers who are not getting enough money. It's not become profitable enough to raise cattle. So what he did was he went to these farmers and he said, okay, you're getting 40 rupees for every liter of milk that you that you sell. I'll give you 50 or 60. What I do want is a certain quality of milk. And then he, you know, opened up a shop uh, where he would provide Good quality milk, and he would charge one and a half times of the regular price. The farmers were happy, and the consumer was happy. A lot of people would argue that this is some of this thing is being done by the current form laws that are being proposed. But what is different in this case is that there is a human connection that does exist between the farmer and the consumer. And I think it is those kind of changes of sustainability. So now this guy, he, he he's a beekeeper himself, and he started to look at honey and shed and is getting into organic wheat. And so I think those are the kind of movements that need to happen in Punjab. And I think for, for that matter, in any place which still has some sort of agro community left. In my last startup, we used to help different cities trying to look at how the demographic of the city was. And one of the things San Francisco was struggling with was a lot of these large tech companies were coming in and they were taking away these small foundries, these small mom and pop shops, and the city was concerned about what will happen if there is exodus of these people, of these families, and only people who are coming here to work and leave. What happens to the culture of the city? And I think exactly the same thing needs to be thought about. What happens when you eliminate small farmers from the farming, from agro communities? What happened to the culture and you know the lives and the you know the, and and the spirit of the place? And I think. This farming protest that is happening, hidden in its unconscious mind, is that fear, and it is that fight that is happening on the ground, even if nobody's talking about it.
0: Understanding the role of cultural identity and its connection to the land is critical. In 1947, as the British left India, they dismantled the region of Punjab with the support of prominent Indian politicians, including Mahatma Gandhi, who allowed for the bloody displacement of hundreds of thousands of people. This event and subsequent events left a lasting mark on the people of Punjab. It left the state in a constant struggle for self-preservation.
1: I mean, it's a completely for a different discussion of what actually happened in 1947, right? That in itself is, is an it's there's a lot to unpack. But I think what, what would, you did see right after 1947 was most of the Punjab, after, you know, half a million deaths during the partition, where two sides of the Punjab, Punjab, Punjab was partitioned into two. The population that had lived there for such a long period of time, you know, went through a bloodshed. So right after 1947, you didn't see the kind of separatist uprising. And the reason behind that was this hope of being in this union while still maintaining their cultural identity. And what you saw in the subsequent uh, years, you know, in the in the division of Punjab in 1966, and then in 80s and 90s, was you saw this cons- consistent struggle that happened between the nation state and the state of Punjab. I would also like to acknowledge, I think, that the the rampant use of you know drug use that also happened in Punjab was because of this the sense of loss or the sense of defeat that happened post the struggles of 80s and 90s. There were two escapes that happened out of it. One, people completely rejected, you know, what was happening. People tried to forget what happened in 80s and 90s and they fleed Punjab. So you have a huge diaspora that exists now. And the other was you saw you know, a lot of people going into, you know, into drugs. But I think it was the nationalism that pushed Punjab to its extreme. And I think what came back was this, you know, spring bounce so you look at the narrative that is fueling this march to delhi you hear a lot of the you know the leaders they are basically saying it's a farmers march and it is it's including everyone it's inclusive but the ethos that is driving it you see jakharras right which is the sikh cries of uh, you know war or you also say you know sikh cries of victory and whenever people are referring they are referring to the examples of the sikh history bhagyal singh's march through delhi bhagyal singh's conquer of the red fort so <laughs> i think the paradigms that are being taken where people are driving these energy to break a narrative that was, you know, six months ago was looking unbreakable. And I mean, if you look at it, it's a 2% of the population that started a movement that has now, you know, incapacitated one of the largest democracy. And it's a peaceful protest. The Punjab and other communities, other farming communities have gone there, opened up langars, which are like free food kitchens, where not only the protesters are, you know, breaking bread, but even people who are Farm laborers from other communities are coming there, breaking bread. They're offering food to even the policemen who are there to stop these protesters. And also, I think the narrative is is breaking. BJP, which is current ruling government in India, spends a huge amount of money in its, both in its digital campaigns and in owning, many of its members own the media houses within India. And that narrative is being broken in such a democratic way because the experience that people are living you know interacting with these farmers who have gone from northern parts of india to the capital and i think that the warmth they're providing to people who are interacting with them goes completely against the narrative of separatists of terrorists that the media the national media which is under the influence of the current ruling government wants to push forward. If India is going to remain a democracy and not become a theocratic dictatorship, then I think this is going to prove a very healthy dose of how a vibrant democracy looks like. Your Farmers are our producers. No community can survive without the role of farmers. And I think if you're going to look at healthy nations of tomorrow, they have to look at what are the kind of farming practices that we are promoting within our own community. And what are the kind of farming structures that we are enabling? And if you feel empathy towards, you know, small farmers, I think wherever you are in the world, it becomes your duty to raise your voice and to empathize with farmers and to raise your voice for the rights.
0: Now that we understand the economic impact that farmers are facing in India, let's take a moment to unpack the Green Revolution itself. The Green Revolution began on the other side of the world by an American scientist named Norman Borlaug who began conducting research on wheat in Mexico in the 1940s, over 20 years before the Green Revolution ever arrived in India. Borlaug created a new strain of wheat called dwarf wheat that resulted in increased crop production. While this yielded its fair share of benefits, it also set the stage for problems we are seeing today. My next guest, Bhavanjith Kaur, is passionate about social justice, politics, and building sustainable habits and solutions. She is joining us from Malaysia.
2: The Green Revolution was introduced in India to help it be self-sufficient in terms of food. And so this was in a time when, you know, uh, India just achieved its independence and they had a certain reputation to play in the international stage. And we can already see that even in the, the fact that it's pressured by international parties like the U.S., it was also pressured a little bit by the World Bank and Ford Foundation, Rockefeller Foundation, uh, to introduce the Green Revolution in India. And then when you go back to the national level, then the government implied uh, a lot of policies towards the Punjab farmers in particular. Punjab was actually the first site for the Green Revolution to take place in India because of the the reputation that they have with farming and agriculture. And of course, it's also a fertile place.
0: The thing about the Green Revolution is that it promised self-sustainability to India as a nation. Instead of having to import crops to feed India's exponentially increasing population, India would be able to produce enough crops for the masses. This led to farmers being forced to use specific high-yielding seeds, which they were forced to purchase along with the necessary chemical fertilizers at retail price, not wholesale. So what we saw during the Green Revolution is that the agriculture economy of Punjab was co-opted by the central government.
2: The government basically revamped the entire stage where they introduced seeds from overseas. So this, this guy who happens to be a Nobel Peace Prize winner, it's Norman Borloy, he created these seeds called miracle seeds and they are basically high-yielding seeds. So what this means is that whenever you plant these seeds, then the yield that they produce is way more than any traditional seeds. And so this was a promising thing, especially when India is looking to be self-sufficient, right? So of course they adapted it. and But the thing is that These seeds require fertilizers. They require a lot of water as well. But initially, the government then saw that, okay, we will have to basically rearrange the entire state to make this happen. And that's what happened.
0: The way the Green Revolution was carried out in India meant that certain states, including Punjab, were made to limit their crop production to certain staple crops like wheat and rice. To meet the desired crop production quantities Farmers had to rely on these new seeds instead of the seed varieties they had been using for generations. It also meant that farming suddenly became more expensive since the seeds required more water and the addition of heavy amounts of fertilizer. Each year, farmers had to take out larger and larger loans to make that initial purchase. In theory, that would result in increasing revenue for farmers. But without stable pricing for their crops or predictable yields, farmers were stuck absorbing increasing debt on off-years.
2: And at that time, it was just after the World War II. Um, so there's an influx of companies uh, internationally. And so they saw it as, OK, it's a good place to make business. And they came in and you know started selling uh, fertilizers.
0: During the war, nitrogen was one of the prime components of explosives. The U.S. government built 10 new plants to supply nitrogen for these bombs. After the war, these plants produced ammonia for fertilizer. Fertilizer use exploded. One of the biggest costs of the Green Revolution was that it was no longer possible for Punjab to self-sustain itself agriculturally with the emphasis on wheat and rice farming. Even the varieties of wheat and rice that were grown were now limited to ones that satisfied the goals of the Green Revolution, tremendously reducing biodiversity. This was, in many ways, driven by American interests with an American scientist and American companies pushing American seeds.
2: The repercussions are still being seen today, where farmers are using these fertilizers for more yield, because obviously they want income, they want to, you know, bring food to the table. But the health concerns that come with it is also something that the government overlooked some would even say that it's a systemic the fact that you know Punjab has always been a very contentious place since partition so these are some of the things that that we can see how power plays between corporations between farmers and the state and then in terms of irrigation i feel personally that that was the peak of power play because this really showed how the government basically just took all matters to itself, even completely disregarding the state government, in rearranging Punjab's water resources. The 1966 Punjab Reorganization Act was put in place whereby Haryana and Himachal Pradesh were separated from Punjab, making it even smaller and coercing it to share its resources. And obviously, this really angered a lot of farmers. Uh, Essentially, the smaller ones really suffered. Uh, Not only do they need money, to get more water resources and fertilizers. But now they have to compete with even more larger owners, you know. So it's a very meticulous issue. You really have to sit down and look at who who's actually suffering and who's actually paying the cards. And in this case, really, it's quite blatant that the government was playing most of its cards and um, being very deliberate with its measures.
0: Since 1947, India's central government has had an unstable relationship with Punjab, especially Punjabi Sikhs. Before the India-Pakistan partition, Sikhs were misled by the Indian Congress Party headed by Jawaharlal Nehru, to gain Sikh support so the partition boundaries of India and Pakistan could be set as far west as possible. Alliance with the Sikhs was essential to the creation of boundaries far into the western region of India, because Punjab, the furthest western state of India, is known to be the homeland of the Sikh people with 61% of its population practicing Sikhism. During speeches such as those of the well-known Indo-independence leader, Mahatma Gandhi, Sikhs were given assurance of Punjab's protection. With Sikh support in the palms of their hands, Congress agreed to the partition of West Punjab once they were in power. This cost Sikhs their land and Indians the trust of Sikhs. Tensions only escalated after the Green Revolution. One of the issues that remains at the heart of state versus central government tension is access to river water, especially after Punjab was further split to form the states of Haryana and Himachal in 1966. In 1976,
2: Punjab was told to allocate its water resources to Haryana without any compensation. For example, if families are living nearby you know, the rivers. They were told to move out or they would bulldoze their homes and things like that. This was the start of a lot of, I would say, resistance amongst the Punjabi Sikhs.
0: The partition of Punjab between India and Pakistan left Punjab with only three of its five rivers. The further divide of Punjab made the rivers interstate rivers, meaning Punjab lost not just land but was choked of its water resources. By creating artificial boundaries that split Punjab's rivers between states, they suddenly fell within the purview of the central government. In reality, under India's constitution, river management falls under the purview of the state government.
2: The Green Revolution brought a lot more problems than it intended to solve.
3: Trying to make it to a land of promise The how is the sweat on my brow when hands are honest I don't need much, my plans are modest Saving money so that my kids are have for college Staring at the map, looking at the land astonished This all feeling is out of reach, it's a hand of God Is I was trying to make it there Pull up my stakes and no mistakes are clear I know to never put my faith in fear Waited on opportunities, hoping that they'd appear And we play by the rule and see politicians or break them here. So I branch out, never was a beggar with my hands out My ethic is first in and last out
4: My name is Amrit. Uh, I also go by noise. I am a rapper, spoken word artist, community organizer. And I just released my first book on November 30th. Outside of music and outside of art, I work in the mental health field.
0: My next guest recently released his book, Keep Moving On, an intergenerational memoir that captures the Punjabi Sikh migrant story while drawing parallels between our past and present.
4: The idea for the book was something I had kind of in the back of my mind for a number of years. You know, growing up, I just kind of heard little bits of anecdotes about the places that they had to travel before they came to Canada. You know, my dad would tell me stories about, you know, how he'd been to Japan and how he'd been to Argentina. And it's like, how does this make sense? You know, how did did you do that? Why did you do that? So there was just a lot of questions and there wasn't ever much discussion from the older generations about what life was like for us back in Punjab before we came to Canada, why we had to leave, what we did to get here, and then kind of what our experience was like in our early years here. So I always had that curiosity just because little hints were dropped. And I wanted to kind of, you know, have the larger context around that. So that's where the idea for the book kind of came from. And then in uh, 2017, Mataji passed away. So he lived in the UK and a lot of articles by, you know, news outlets in his local community, they wrote about his upbringing, you know, they wrote about how he came to the UK at the age of 13 and, you know, how he worked on a construction site. He worked for British Rail. He started his own business. And these were a lot of facts that I didn't know, you know, the facts that weren't shared with me. And it, it really just kind of, I guess, put put a bit of a fear in me that, you know, if I were to lose my parents, their stories would be lost with them. There would be so much that I never got the chance to learn. And so really the the push behind the book or what really motivated me to, to act upon this idea that I had was wanting to document their stories, wanting to know what life was like, you know, back in the fifties and sixties when they were kids in Punjab, why they left, how they left, and then what was it like here in our early years growing up. So that was, you know, where the idea for the book came from. And then Incorporating the music into the book really kind of came from 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 a place of insecurity, really. You know, I, I've been as an artist for, for a number of years, putting out music for so long and then making this transition to being a writer. In the back of my mind, I was like, I don't know how people are going to accept this. So even if they don't want the book, once it's out, at least they'll still have some music to listen to. So the working on the music at the same time as working on the book was kind of like my security blanket. But as I was kind of putting the music together, I wanted to do something special with it. And a lot of the the subject matter in the music and the themes covered are, you know, kind of reimaginings and reinterpretations of some of the major themes within the book. So there is talk of, you know, migration, of intergenerational trauma, of, you know, racism or facing racism, facing classism, intergenerational family dynamics. So all of that. The the major themes of the book find their way in the music as well.
0: Punjab's farming has historically been a thriving industry. The tide began to change with the introduction of India's Green Revolution in the 1960s. With the support of U.S. scientists, companies filled Punjab's farms with harmful chemicals, depleting naturally occurring nutrients from the soil, and making farmers dependent on high levels of fertilizers and pesticides Year after year.
4: Both sides of my family, my mom's side and my dad's side, there's a long history of farmers and, you know, being involved in agriculture. From my dad's upbringing, from the story that he shared with me, you know, both of his parents worked on the farm. After school, it was kind of his expectation that he would work on the farm as well. Same thing with his siblings. And, you know, that was kind of the way things were done for, for, for generations. And the way they talk about the Green Revolution is, they talk about it being just this, this huge shift from the way things had always been done for generations and for centuries. And it required them to, to invest more as far as you know having money to buy seeds, having money to buy fertilizers, pesticides, all that. And it wasn't something that they you know, would have done on their own if it wasn't imposed upon them because you know, they had oh, their way of doing things and they were happy with the, their way of doing things. And I, and I think... The, w- the way they talk about the Green Revolution is in, in two different ways. So in one way, the old way of farming, it was very much community centered. The farmers had a role to play in the the functioning of their society, but so did everybody else. You know, whether you were a seamstress or whether you were an ironsmith, you know, everybody had an important role to play to the functioning of everybody else. So you're responsible for, to each other and for each other. So the Green Revolution kind of was a change from that where... Now there was so much more money involved, where at that time it was more based upon trade. Um, And then the other way they kind of talk about the Green Revolution is that it really changed their relationship with the land. So there was always this deep respect for the land. You know, my my dad told me a story about, you know, growing up, there were very heavy monsoons for a number of years in a row, and there were really bad floods, which affected their ability to farm. But there was this perspective of even though we're struggling, even though we can't farm the way we normally would because of these floods. You know, we can't celebrate a good harvest and at the same time get upset when there is a flood. So there was just kind of you work with what the earth gives you. But then with the Green Revolution, their perspective now was that by applying these fertilizers, chemicals and by shifting to this new method, it, had, it changed their relationship to the land now. And it wasn't about you know, respecting what the earth gives you. Now it's more so about imposing your own will upon the land.
0: There is a connection that exists between the land and its generational stewards. In North America, we have experienced firsthand the cultural and environmental degradation stemming from the genocide of indigenous communities. These are communities that have historically cultivated regenerative and healing relationships with the earth. In the case of the Green Revolution, you touch on how generational knowledge of farming was replaced by new methods that instead depleted the land and people of Punjab.
4: You know, when we're talking to people in my family about the way farming was done, they saw farming as something more than just being a job. It was a way of life. It was, you know, something that had been done for generations, for hundreds of years. So the way they farmed, the, the best way to do it, the, the types of crops to, to plant, um, the way the food was shared with the community. You know, these were important things that were passed down and implemented from generation to generation. And for the folks or for the people in my family that were there during the Green Revolution, they kind of felt like things were now all about money. You know, it wasn't just about, you know, making a decent living. It wasn't just about feeding your family, feeding your community. It wasn't about that connection to the land and the connection to the people. It was more so, you know, a a money system now. And they kind of expressed this deep loss of you know, this this thing that became the only thing you had known for so long to now it's something that is, you know, you're you're still involved in it, but it's not the same anymore. They're still farming, but it doesn't agree with their the way they've practiced it for so long. So it it, it really was just this big shift of where your knowledge base is kind of cast aside for this other way of doing it. And whether or not you agree with it, that's kind of you have to roll with it now. And I see it today with with my family, with my dad, for example, like we still farm every summer when we can in the backyard. We'll, we'll grow in vegetables and, you know, there, there's so much joy and peace when they do it. it, it I think it, for them, it almost, it's almost kind of like a, a return to when he was a kid, you know, in the 50s and in the 60s, when he, where he's able to farm the way he wants to and he's still able to have that knowledge live on in some way. So even though he wasn't able to use it for, you know, for 50 years or whatever the case is. That knowledge, it's, it's still, it still lives and it's still able to, to be passed on, although in a different context, but it's still there.
0: When chemical fertilizers and pesticides were introduced in Punjab, they were done so without the proper protections or education on how to use these chemicals without harming the bodies of the farmers themselves. Nonetheless, Punjab has the highest rate of cancer in India.
4: Just going back to my own time being in school, you know, we, we hear about, you know, how, you know, birth control pills, for example, back in the 50s, they actually caused birth defects. It's kind of the same thing we see with some of the, the things farmers were told to do. We're told that, you know, this was something that will benefit you, but there was a lack of information or a lack of how to safely use it that, you know, led to a lot of ill effects. So, you know, my dad told me a story about how they had to apply the chemical DDT on their crops in order to make sure the mosquitoes wouldn't eat, eat them. And, you know, we see that play through now where, you know, a lack of information about how to safely use these chemicals or the the harmful effects and the side effects of these chemicals, it's impacted the soil of Punjab. It's impacted people as well. We see higher cancer rates in areas that have more, you know, pesticide use or more fertilizer use. So it's it's a scary thing to think about it where, you know, a lot of farmers believed in what the government was telling them. They kind of went along with these practices because they thought ultimately it would benefit them. But as we see throughout the decades, it's just been Very harmful from, you know, a health aspect as well as from an economic aspect because so many people, to buy the seeds, to buy the fertilizers, they had to go so deeply into debt in order to keep up with all these changes.
0: Crippled with insurmountable debt from unpredictable harvests and a forced dependence on expensive pesticides... Farmers are dying by suicide at alarming rates. In 2019, a reported 10,281 farmers died by suicide in India, a majority of whom reside in Punjab. As with anything related to human rights in India, the exact number of suicides that occur in Punjab is likely underestimated. As a mental health professional, how do you find balance between mental wellness and economic wellness?
4: I think it's it's a challenging conversation because Punjab and a lot of places in South Asia in general, or a lot of places in the world, um, we even see this out west. But a lot of places, there is still very much so a heavy stigma around you know talking about mental health. Within the context of my work in the past, I've worked with folks that are that are homeless. You know, they struggle with their mental health, but they also struggle economically and. You kind of wonder how much does one affect the other? It's kind of like a chicken and egg situation, you know? If you improve the mental health of somebody, but they're still under economic oppression, will that just cycle and cause even more mental hardship? Or is it possible to, to really improve someone's mental health without also improving their economic standing in life as well? And so it's it's kind of tough to parse the two apart, but I think certainly what Uh, where a lot of people in India could benefit from is having more access to mental health services. You know, maybe if these farmers had access to services, maybe they would have chosen another route rather than feeling like suicide was the only option. So I think it's important that when we talk about development, we don't just look at it from the context of economic development, but also from social development, from community development, and make sure that, you know, even if we are providing people more access to, to jobs, for example, or to housing, you need that other part to go with it is not just about the, the material, but also the other side of it too, which is uh, the the personal.
0: Global development must have an intersectional approach. We need to take the time to deconstruct the layers behind why a problem exists and the effects of any proposed solution to make sure we aren't allowing systemic oppression to continue or morph into a new problem that is equally harmful or worse those being impacted must be at the decision-making table. They should have been back then, and they should be right now.
2: Well,
4: I know within, at least within the context of my family, going back to the 60s, the family went into a lot of debt to try to purchase the supplies and the, the agrochemicals that they needed to keep up with the changes of the Green Revolution. And that debt got passed down. So it started with my grandfather, went to my dad. From my dad, it went down to my chacha. And so my Chacha, who's still in Punjab and still farming, you know, he's still dealing with that debt. And sometimes I I wonder, you know, if my dad wasn't out here in Canada and if he didn't have the ability to send money back home, you know, what kind of would the state of my family back home be? So it is it's difficult to think, you know, where this cycle of debt or this legacy of debt for a lot of folks, it seems so insurmountable and they don't see an opportunity to get out of it just through farming and suicide becomes the only option or the only option that they see. But then it, it, it really puts the rest of the family in, in dire straits now too, because now they've, they're left to deal with it as well as, you know, the the trauma of losing a loved one on top of it. So it's, it's a really difficult and, and multi-layered issue to try to tackle.
0: Six make up a majority of Punjab's farming community. In a country grappling with Hindu nationalism, Sikhs, like Muslims and other marginalized groups, continue to face the realities of fighting for justice from a country that has historically and continues to deny their very existence. Since the 1980s, Sikh activists continue to be abducted for speaking up against India's oppressive systems. Cries for justice have been met with fake police reports, imprisonment, and death. Within Punjab and Haryana, over 8,000 reports of forced disappearances still remain open today. However, with government-controlled reporting and censorship, access to information on the realities of India's treatment of marginalized communities is incredibly difficult.
4: I was talking to my in-laws, and so my, my mother-in-law, her brother was actually um, abducted by Punjab police in the 80s. He was tortured and eventually released. but. I wanted to to have that story in the book but in order to do that you have to to break it down you know how did things get to that point where police are pretty much just snatching six off the street for without cause so to talk about how things got to that point, you have to go back. You have to talk about, you know, an side resolution and Punjabi Suba movement and partition. And it requires you to go far back decades into the past in order to contextualize what was happening within that moment in the eighties. But the hard part is a lot of sources don't tell you the whole story. They might just talk about partition or they might just talk about, you know, redistribution of river waters. And so I don't know if that was by design to make it harder for us to kind of piece together our history. But that was certainly something that I came across, you know, doing the research for my book.
0: Nationalism is a scary thing and is often reinforced by systems of oppression. India is a majority Hindu country with religious minorities constantly existing under threat. India's Prime Minister, Narendra Modi, belongs to the Bharti Janata Party, or BJP, which is rooted in nationalism, calling for India to be Hindi, Hindu, Hindustan, a land of people who speak Hindi, practice Hinduism, essentially the land of the Hindus. He is a member of the RSS, a fascist paramilitary organization. My last guest, Dr. Prabhjot Singh, is a Sikh activist based in the Bay Area. Together, we explore the importance of deconstructing religio-political constructs when unpacking the protests happening in India today.
5: The systems of oppression have helped Sikhs and Punjabis build a mindset and perspective when it comes to existence, essentially. Sikhs have been persecuted for decades, and before the decades from Indian oppression, it was British oppression, and then it was Mughal oppression. So, this goes since basically Sikhi's inception.
0: Sikhism, also referred to as Sikhi, is the predominant religion in Punjab, which often makes Punjabi and Sikh identity inextricable from each other. The ethos of the Sikh identity is rooted in fighting injustice. Founded at a time of social divide, Sikhism challenged systems of oppression by establishing equality regardless of gender, religion, or caste, which is why all Sikh men take on the last name Singh and Sikh women take on the last name God.
5: Sikhi has always been about understanding your place within existence, and it's being aware of your existence, and it's being mindful of your existence.
0: Sikh philosophy incorporates poetic metaphors rooted in nature to capture the essence of existence.
5: Pavan Guru, the wind is a guru, Pani Pita, water is uh, the father, Mata Tartamahat. Tart is Tarti, is our land.
0: Referred to as the Mata or mother in this passage, the land has always been given the utmost respect in Sikh religion and Punjabi culture alike. Understanding this context is critical to understanding the nuanced connectedness that exists between Sikh farmers and their fields. Before English occupation, the Sikh Raj under Maharaja Ranjit Singh occupied the undivided land of Punjab and beyond from 1799 to 1849. Punjab remained the home of the Sikh Raj till the British East India Trading Company catalyzed the Anglo-Sikh Wars that led to the dissolution of the Sikh kingdom. Fast forward to India's independence movement which resulted in the partition of Punjab during which a majority of those who died fighting against British rule were Sikh.
5: In Jallianwala Bagh there were 1300 people killed 799 were sick. Throughout Indian independence, there was a certain number that were hung and 70 to 75 percent of those were sick. There was a certain number that were given life imprisonment for Indian independence. Um, 70 to 75 percent of those were sick. Sicks are less than 2 percent of the population of India, yet they're making these huge sacrifices for causes that they believe in.
0: From the partition of Punjab in 1947 to the events leading up to the Sikh massacre in 1984, Sikhs have been constantly persecuted by the Indian state. One of the most tried and tested ways to erase a culture or community is by erasing its history.
5: Absolutely. I think this has um, connections to ongoing cultural genocide that's going on. In 1984, when they attacked Hermandar Sahib, they made sure to burn the library where Sikh historical texts were. And part of that reason is once you erase history, you make it very difficult for them to trace their heritage. Sikhs have still persevered and survived, but that doesn't eliminate the fact of what the intention was there. And so Punjab has through the way that it's formed, has become a state that is largely dependent on agriculture. And with these billionaires that are coming around with corporations, and they, re- they realize and they recognize that the projected numbers say agriculture will be a very profitable business in the next 10 to 15 years. And that's the direction it's going. So if now in 2020, you can make an investment that's gonna really pay off many times over in 2035, that's something billionaires are willing to do. And it's kind of a two bird, one stone scenario in this case because a genocide was occurring and now you have the opportunity to not only benefit off of the disintegration of these people, but your intention in the first place was to lead to their demise and now you get to profit off of it. So I think there's two prongs to this attack and it's beneficial to, to anyone that endorses the Indian state's, the Indian government's way of, of thinking. And I, I would see that definitely in Prime Minister Narendra Modi, very well recognized as a Hindu nationalist, as someone that's working actively to make India into uh, a one religion, one language, one belief system type of country. If that type of person has this type of opportunity, you can see how the farmer bills were created.
0: The question of human rights in India is a tricky one. Before Modi became Prime Minister of India, he was the Chief Minister of Gujarat. During his time as Chief Minister, he sanctioned the killing of over 2,000 Muslims. In fact, he was banned from entering the United States from 2005 till he was elected into office as prime minister in 2014 due to human rights abuses. The reality is the Indian government's response to the protesters has been nothing short of history repeating itself. From being called terrorists to blackouts on fair media reporting, memories of India's government-sanctioned 1984 Sikh genocide are resurfacing opening up wounds that never fully healed. Seeing the army deployed and the police brutally beating protesters is horrifying. It is forcing so many of us to revisit our community's past trauma and face the realities of our present. Survival is the name of the game, since thriving is a far-fetched dream.
5: I see it as the final assault because this is that nail in the coffin. After decades of oppression, you have committed a genocide against Sikhs and in Punjab specifically. You know, you've attacked the holiest shrine. There was a decade of disappearances where males 15 to 45 were just picked up and disappeared and their bodies were never returned. There was Operation Shuddhikarn, which was the government sanctioning police officers to go from village to village. And rape sick women and eliminate a generation of six. That was the intention behind it. Then there was the Burgari where there was people protesting peacefully and shots were fired by the police and people were killed there. So this is not exclusive to farmer protests. The reason we're seeing so many farmers and so many protesters come out right now is because of this silent dissent that has always been within Punjabis against the central Indian government.
0: There has been a push to separate Sikhi from the protests. However, as each guest has mentioned, doing so dismisses a lot of the nuance in how the two identities inform each other.
5: The Indian propaganda machine is so powerful that we are afraid to call facts facts. We're afraid to call things how they are.
0: So much false reporting is coming out of India. So what can those living outside of India do?
5: I think the primary role we play from the diaspora is going to be narrative. What narrative are we successful in setting? Is it the reality or is it what the Indian propaganda machine will continue to peddle out? There's a whole tie-in between Facebook investing in... Indian companies, they just put $5.7 billion in Geo Industries, which is the largest telecommunications entity within India. And the CEOs of this Geo Industries are close friends with Narendra Modi and Facebook owns WhatsApp, Facebook owns Instagram, Facebook owns obviously Facebook. So that kind of conglomeration of power is so tight knit. It's, uh, it's a very select few that are setting the narrative these 80 year old farmers sitting on the streets of delhi and they're considered terrorists by the indian media so it's important for us to set a counter narrative it's important for us to set forth exactly what has happened to our people aside from this facade that the indian propaganda machine that the indian media that the indian government wants you to believe this is not just farmer bills this is a part of an ongoing genocide these people are not terrorists they're advocating for their rights
0: The protests happening in India are as much about land rights as they are about human rights. May it be Hindu nationalism terrorizing India's marginalized communities or white nationalism storming the U.S. Capitol building. Fascism thrives on fear, fear of the other. We must appreciate that rhetoric based in racial and religious politics carries great weight. There are layers of social, economic, environmental, and religio-political justice that we must unpack to understand the complexity of the protests happening in India. There is so much more to the story than what we see on the surface. While there are parallels we can draw between the experiences of different communities globally, the nuances are where the complexities lie, and those nuances are where we must shed light to take it back to Amrit.
4: You know, agriculture is something that affects everybody. You know, it's not just a Punjabi thing. And we can certainly implement more consciousness when it comes to our food consumption uh, within our own communities. You know, where is our food coming from? Where, who is it being distributed by? Who benefits from it? And just kind of being more conscious and more aware of our food, where we consume it, how we consume it. I think that is something that is directly connected to what we're seeing in Punjab. And that is a, a small change that we can make that has, you know, real impact within our own community. So I think being more aware of what's happening within your own community, being more civically engaged, I think is, is a huge thing that we can do, not just for the, the issue of the farmers protest, but with anything, you know, that could be with, you know, issues affecting Black people in our community or immigrants' rights or, you know, any number of issues that we see rise up in our communities. Being more civically engaged and being aware and acting from a a community conscious, I think is huge.
0: With that, I want to thank all the listeners for tuning in to today's episode and extend a special thank you to Arvinder, Bhavanjeet, Amrit, and Prabhjot for joining me and sharing their valuable insights. If you would like to support those protesting in Delhi, please consider donating to KalsaAid.org. Demand fair reporting and support initiatives like Trolley Times, which is a grassroots project highlighting the voices of protesters in Delhi right now. I have included additional links in the show notes for resources, educational material, and information on how to follow our guests. To learn more about Art of Citizenry and for information on future webinars and workshops, please visit ArtofCitizenry.com. You can also find me on Instagram at Manpreet Please remember to subscribe to Art of Citizenry podcast on your favorite listening app. From here on Duwamish land, sending positive and healthy vibes your way.
3: I'm trying to make it to a land of promise. The how is the sweat on my brow when hands are honest. I don't need much, my plans are modest Saving money so that my kids are have for college Staring at the map, looking at the land astonished It's all feeling, is out of reach, is the hand of God is. I was trying to make it there Pull up my stakes and no mistakes are clear I know to never put my faith in fear Waited on opportunities, hoping that they'd appear And we play by the rule and see politicians to break them here So I branch out, never was a beggar with my hands out My ethic is first in and last out Though I don't know where to go, still I travel as I battle over stolen control. Still unraveling the road in my soul, feeling gravel that eroded road in the soul of my shoes. Moving in truth, I'm feeling fragile as my shoulders are pulled. The load of the globe been a pillow when the sky is falling. The bitter pill of hitting the ceiling of higher columns. Getting tired hauling all of this, and so I harness this frustration and fire to place it all upon a risk. The face of mama lit the memories I hold hard to stay warm and out here is ten degrees below. No more carrying the legacies of old. They cemented over centuries ago. So every step ahead of me is destiny bestowed. What awaits wasn't meant for me to know. Ah, changes, changes for a better life than we know. We taking that. And holding on, but broken below the calm and told that we don't belong. But I know the song, either we flow the fold up, I showed them wrong. But rather show to the fam than nothing can slow the strong. Oh, oh, sharing in the culture, bearing the knowledge of our ancestors. Oh, oh, they don't wanna give us. We have less to still, the fam blessed us. But we sharing with our loved ones. I break bread where I lay my hand. So, oh, one day they'll know. To keep it safe and take a leap of faith No believer, shake a sleeper so I chase a dream away Where the zenith of a leader is How much that he can take I perceive it as what he gives and what can he create I shake freedom from the last look at my past When I was cornered like a rook and now I'm pushing it fast And hopping over the edge Growing my wings on my way down on this road I don't know where it heads In this land where nothing is promised The bright lights, no dulling in the wattage The loud city that's numbing the silence. Where we feeling so alone like loving for goddess But there ain't no coming back where nothing Accomplished, So I heed the plan for no other reason but to try to feed the fam. My first step on this long road to now we seeing the scene expand and carry this journey that we began. Yeah, land of promise.